Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 157 of the Conquering Columbus podcast. Today on the show, we've got Mr. Mark Sellers joining us, and Mark is a sales consultant and expert. He's the CEO of Breakthrough Sales Performance LLC, and we have him on the show today to talk all things sales, his journey as a solopreneur, and I definitely think all you sales leaders and entrepreneurs out there could learn a lot from this episode. So stay tuned, and I hope you learn a lot. Before we jump into that interview, though, we got to take a quick moment to thank some of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus, and that starts with Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus, and their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community, and Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to join like-minded businesses to raise money for great causes, participate in large-scale volunteer efforts, and improve educational opportunities for youth in our community. To get your small business involved or to learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That is smallbizcares.org. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And now I'm going to kick it back to Josh to tell you about our last sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself become the fastest growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we've got Mr. Mark Sellers joining us, and Mark is the founder and CEO of Breakthrough Sales Performance, LLC a sales consulting firm right here in Columbus. And Mark has helped over 120 sales teams around the world implement his proprietary buying journey sales funnel model, the bicycle funnel. We're really excited to have him on the show today to talk all things sales. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Mark. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Josh. Good to be here. And uh, welcome to round two. So last time we tried to have Mark in here, they were uh, tearing down our walls around us. So had to come back for round two. Appreciate you taking the time to join us. But uh, how's, how's the day going so far? Pretty good, yeah. Busy, a lot of a lot of client work on the phone, but uh, you know, passes the time pretty quickly. 
That's true. That's true. The life of a salesman is often spent on the phone. But uh, so what's a typical day look like for you now? What are you doing day to day? So um, not to get too detailed, but, you know, I'm an early riser. So I like to get up and, and get some exercise in uh, with all the weather turning. I'm on the bike now. Uh, doing a little running, doing a little lifting, nothing, nothing big, not setting any records, you know, but just keeping the body moving. like to get my son off to school. He's a junior at Watterson, Bishop Watterson High School. So the last of three, I want to make sure I find those moments for, of quality time before he's, he's gone for quite some time. So uh, I typically down in my office by about 7, 7.15. And, you know, clients probably, if we do, a, I do a lot of client work out of the office, um, which is, I, I love it, you know, because... And a lot of consultants have to, to be in front of the client physically to, to apply their trade. I don't have to. So we do a lot of coaching calls over the phone. And it may not be unusual for me to have five or six of those in a day. And each one lasts maybe 45 minutes to an hour. So that's pretty typical. Redoing my website right now. So, you know, working with the web guy on that. I'm finishing up a new book called Blind Spots. So it's a little bit of everything, a little prospecting, you know, throw that in there. You never can be, you can never be prospecting um, too much. So it's just a day in the life of a, of a solopreneur. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I was thinking of, while you were saying, I was going, where's this guy finding time to prospect? That's a lot. You mean six, seven meetings, 45 minutes, hours pile up there. But yeah. theme of our show here on Conquering Columbus is live uncomfortably. And without talking about too much about why Josh and I chose that theme, what do you think of when you hear that phrase? And talk to us about how it applies to your life and career. Uh, I'd say that um, th- things happen when you when you put yourself in in uncomfortable situations. Good things happen when you do that. I talked to a, a good friend of mine today, for example, who's not happy in his job. He's a he's a director of sales, and he's about my age and you know he's he's ready for a change. He's he wants to still work hard, and so we talked about. You know, doing doing what I do, hang a shingle out, and he's got a lot that he could provide small organizations and do a little training and maybe represent the funnel principle in my business and some others as well. And I told him, I said, if you force, if you, if you try to hang on and, and get that business started while you still have your job, hey, more power to you if, if that can work. But I think there's a lot to be said. Go jump in the deep end if you're really committed to doing this. And but that's uncomfortable, right? But I think. Um, I think in my life, you know, the things that I'm proud of and the things that have worked well for me have been when I've forced myself, not willingly all the time, let me be honest, right, but when I forced myself to do, do things like that. Uh, in 1995, I, I, I decided I was going to run my first marathon. In January, I decided this. So I started running in January, right? That was not very comfortable. I got into this line of business by getting laid off, not my choice that was very uncomfortable. But the growth that happens when you put yourself in these uncomfortable situations is, I think that's where some transformative growth can happen, both professionally, like in my friend's case, hey, I'm gonna stop working for other people and I'm gonna start working for myself, that's a big deal. Or in your personal life, things that you choose to do, that you, things you choose to stop doing, that's not easy to stop doing, things that you choose to start doing, that's not easy to start and continue doing. That's I love that. That's why I like the theme of you guys' show, and, um, and I try to live that as much as I can every day. Growing up, you were in golf pretty deeply, right? And you, you mentioned like the discipline there is, is pretty uncomfortable. I miss those days. Yeah, yeah. I wish I played a lot more than I than I do now. But um, I, 
uh, I'd say for me, uh, you know, people uh, associate, I'm a type A kind of a guy. If you're an Enneagram, you know, any, any Enneagram fans out there, I'm a type three, so I'm a high achiever, right? So the discipline's never been difficult, really, for me. I've, um, and I know your, your background with wrestling and things, I mean, it's just a grueling um, physical uh, commitment. I've never had a hard time with discipline. So it was, in some cases, easy for me to start a business. You know, define what I want to do, set the goals, lay out the plan, go get it done. The things that are not easy for me, that might be easy for other people, different story. <laughs> That's the, dis the discomfort. I mean, I, I would probably be, I, I watched Brene, Brene Brown, if you're familiar with her, phenomenal books on vulnerability, five-time best-selling, New York Times best-selling author. And she opens this Netflix series that I watched just this past weekend. She said, I don't know how many of you know this, but I am a, a intense introvert. And she's up there on stage with Netflix, you know, a big crowd and doing her thing. Like her, I'm probably more of an, I mean, Myers-Briggs, I'm, I'm an INTJ. So I am more of an introvert, even though that surprises some people. You're a public speaker, you, you, you facilitate training programs. It's just different. Um, I'm, I'm comfortable in those kinds of situations, but put me in a, a big room with a bunch of people partying and have a good time. I don't work crowds, you know, give me a cozy couch and I'll listen to the music <laughs> or watch whatever somebody's watching on TV. Um, I tend to, you know, like the quiet of my home. So, so I'm, I forced myself to try and get out of that. I go, to, I go to Mexico now every year with, with four other couples and which is something I and my wife have never done before. We have a blast, but that wasn't easy for me to do that kind of thing, you know? So discipline, you know, discipline's never been a big deal for me. <laughs> well, in the beginning, you were talking about your typical day and you talk about you know, the life of a solopreneur. And I feel like discipline, I've always fortunately been good at it, but it's been extremely difficult for me, especially in cases where I have to uh, be really autonomous and kind of create my own destiny. So like thinking about your life as a solopreneur, you have to lay out what your daily schedule is. Nobody's telling you what to do or how to execute. I can be very disciplined and execute easily when somebody's telling me what to do, but I found when I have to come up with it on my own, I can do it, but it's, it's a very difficult, it feels like I'm going against the grain. You know? okay. so, so when you jumped to life as a solopreneur, how were you able to manage that? Was that ever difficult for you, or you just always kind of saw the path and the tasks that needed to get done along the way? So, so I'm a big fan of paradox, and I think um, you know, what I found difficult as a solopreneur is not what I thought I would find difficult. So I have, in, in my book, Blind Spots, I have a term I use called the vice and the virtue. So we have, these, we have these virtues, right? And one of my virtues is I'm a disciplined guy. You know, you don't have to tell me you need to go to the, to the driving range, Mark, as a 16-year-old kid or a 19-year-old kid, and you need to work on your long irons or you need to work on your bunker play because you're going to be playing this course that has a lot of bunkers or whatever. Never had that problem. So starting a business, going down to the office and putting the plan together, you know, marketing plan, sales plan, business plan, all that kind of stuff. I, you know, I've got my strengths and weaknesses, don't get me wrong, but that act, uh, that was never difficult for me. What became difficult was what was easy for me being alone, solo. And what I've learned as I've grown and matured, isolation is a bad thing. It's just not a good thing. But it comes easy to me, right? So it's easy to stay wallowed in isolation and think that everything's fine and dandy and cool. And it's, 
we're just, I don't think we're wired to be creatures like that. So if it, so if it comes easy for me to, to be isolated and do my own thing, my wife calls me the Lone Ranger. Um, I, hope, I hope some of your listeners at least remember the, <laughs> the Lone Ranger. I'm not sure you guys do. But uh, yeah, I mean, so there's a virtue in that. But the vice in that is you can't, uh, borrowing a phrase from one of my, one of my, my buddies in our men's group at, uh, at St. Bridget's, you can't make it in Dublin, Ohio by yourself. See, I would have said 15 years ago or even 10 years ago, I would have said, what are you talking about? But now I realize the, you know, the, the, the profundity of that, of that statement. You can't. And as, as young guys, you know, that's, you know, whether it's isolation or, or, or not, I mean, the faster you can reach out and depend on people, ironically, the better off I think you're going to be. You'll be better off in your relationships, your 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 spousal relationships, your friend relationships, your family relationships, your business relationships. We all need people <laughs> to help us, you know. So that's what I that's what I discovered in in my solopreneurship, if you will. So before we go too far off the outline that we put together, let's take it back and talk about early career and life growing up. Sure. So maybe, you know, a synopsis of the milestones along the way in your earlier career that really stick out and form you into who you are today. So business career, uh, post-college. Oh, uh, yeah, even growing up, too, if there are things. I mean, I'm sure there were formidable years in your childhood that kind of shaped who you became as an adult. Yeah, I, I think the golf thing, number one, I... Um, yeah, I grew up in a, in a golf family. My mother was a really good golfer. My dad was a good golfer. <laughs> they still are. My dad called me the other day, and he, sh- he said he shot one under his age. He's 77 years old. A couple of years ago, he shot 71 a couple of times in the summer. It's like, the guy's amazing. So my mother was a big five, uh, five-time Marion County champion and would win club championship you know, tournaments everywhere we, we, we moved and everything. So I golf all my life. In the ninth grade, I became serious about it and was a conference champion. And then I became a conference champion again when I was a senior. And at that point, I said, I think I want to play in college. So, you know, I was a grinder. I put in the effort, and that produced the results that I, I, I was able to get. So that was absolutely formative, and I, I draw upon those lessons all the time today. Walk on in college, so that was good. You know, didn't get a scholarship, so that was, that was a big deal for me. Felt like a big accomplishment. You know, obviously getting married to a great lady and, and, and then having children, big time milestone, you know, growing up and having to, to do all that, have that responsibility. Career-wise, um, been, been in sales my whole life, so first I'd say big, big milestone was getting a management job. They didn't train me very well to, to be a manager, you know. Here's the people you have to report to and... Here's, you know, the quota we've got to hit and, and all that kind of stuff. So have to learn on the job. I'd say that was uh, pretty important. But then getting laid off and then figuring out what I was going to do with that, uh, obviously a big deal to, uh, to go into business for yourself. I've made that work. I'd say writing the book, I've kind of, you know, I represented another company's sales training products for about the first 11 years. So then breaking off from them, even though I was 100% commission and had my own business representing them, um, I still had them as a partner. So 11 years into that gig, leaving them, another big, big milestone. Now I'm truly on my own. I got this thing called the funnel principle, and who knows if this is really going to work, you know, and if this book is going to sell or be successful. And most salespeople don't, sales authors don't make a lot of money off of their books. You know, it's the consulting and the training, and, you know. So that proved out to be, obviously, a good move. And um, 
now I'm hoping the blind spots will be the next calling card and help me get get to some places in in this evolution that I, I really want to get to. Makes a lot of sense, and, and you know it's interesting whenever people lay out their stories on the show. I, I just the similarities you see a lot of times, like for instance, like a lot of our guests started their entrepreneurial journey getting laid off, and they said, "Hey, what am I going to do?" Well, the type of person that an entrepreneur is is not going to sit and say, "Ah, I just can't find a job," and sit and they're going to find something, right? So, when you did get laid off, and you said, "Okay, I'm going to strike out on my own," what? How'd you come to the idea, and how'd you come to the consulting and the process that you went through to kind of formulate that idea and turn it into a real business? That's a really, really good question, Mike, because it wasn't, uh, even though I'd been in, in my, I'd, in my, my whole career, I'd been through in sales, you know, whether it's a salesperson, sales manager, is doing some sales training. When I got laid off, I didn't say, oh, well, I got to just start a sales consulting training practice. I mean, for some reason, I had it in my head that I was destined to be in marketing, product management, marketing management, climb that you know, inside corporate ladder. I kind of sort of know why, but I took the GMAT a couple of times. I was convinced I'm going to do my three, four, five years. Back then you did three, four, five years, and then you went back and got your MBA. That was the thing to do. So I was convinced that um, that was a, a very likely path as well, and maybe this was a time to do that. Took the GMAT. I bombed. I mean, <laughs> I'm not even going to tell you what I scored on that test, but it, no, no really, really good top programs would have Mark Sellers, trust me. So that was a bit of a, but that was good because it was a wake-up call. Maybe this thing that I think I need to chase is, you know, it's like I like, to, I like to say, I've always been a ladder climbing kind of guy, but that was one where I felt like I had my ladder leaning against the wrong wall. I was not destined to be an inside anything type of guy working for somebody else or, or something I was destined to be doing what I'm doing now I really believe that so thank God GMAT wasn't wasn't cut out for me forced me to ask some questions well okay what do I do now so I reached out to the guy I had hired to do training for me in that last job they came in and they did a bunch of sales training I got certified in their program and I said what's the gig like so I actually flew to Tahoe Flew to Reno, drove to Tahoe because they had a big uh, meeting of their independent sales consultants. And he said, come and meet the owner of the business and you'll see what this is about. So that's how I got to that. And so I represented the Miller-Hyman Company for 11 years. And proudly, they were great for me. I think I was great for them. So that's how I got into sales training, sales consulting. All right, Conquerors. We're going to take a quick break here in the show to tell you about a group called Columbus Gives Back. If you're looking for a way to get involved in your community, but you don't know where and how to start, look no further than Columbus Gives Back. By partnering with over 150 Central Ohio nonprofits, Columbus Gives Back makes volunteering fun and easy by offering 30 to 40 volunteer events each month that are free of cost, commitment, and hassle. Sign up for your first event today at columbusgivesback.org. That's columbusgivesback.org. All right, let's get back into the episode. And then talk about the point when you get to writing a book. I mean, what a big milestone that I'd like to achieve in my life at some point is, is write a book. And but when I think about it, I think is the daunting task of going back to, you know, where do you start? How do you, how do you set the milestones along the way? And, yeah. and how do you bring a bunch of content together that you've been learning your entire life, try to remember it, and then put it in a way where you think people will actually get value out of it? Yeah, yeah. So wind the tape back. I remember at Ohio State, I went to Western Kentucky for two years playing golf, and then I got burnt out playing golf. 
mom and dad were living in Delaware, Ohio, so I just said, kind of default back then, this is what you did. Oh, I'll go to Ohio State, right? You can't kind of do that that easily these days. But I remember walking past Long's Bookstore. If those of you, hopefully, you remember Long's Bookstore. Uh, it's not there anymore, I think, right? It's torn no, down. I don't think it is. So um, uh, it's been a while since it's been on campus. But I, I remember walking past the little windows, if you remember the display windows, where they had books. And I said to myself, I'm going to write a book someday. And I was big into reading Ziegler and Maxwell Maltz and uh, Carnegie. I mean, Tony Schwartz, I was big into that, you know, visualize, make it come, make it come true. And so I just, I'd go back, right, uh, walk by there all the time and say, I'm going to write a book someday. I have no idea what it's going to be about. We'll get there <laughs> in due time. So five, four or five years into the Miller-Hyman thing, I started getting ideas I said, I said, this stuff is good, but it's missing something. And what I, fast forward, what I concluded it was missing was what today has become quite popular and what I call a new standard, this whole buying journey, customer buying process uh, framework or idea when it comes to selling and pipeline management. That piece was missing, and I felt like if we had that piece, it would make all of the training that we were doing pop even more. Another tie, another link, Roger Blackwell, well-known professor of marketing at Ohio State, great guy, good friend of mine. In his textbook, Consumer Behavior, he and two other guys created a model of decision-making called the EKB model, Ingle Collett Blackwell model of decision-making. So I'm like, flash of the, you know, flash of the, like, you know, of the obvious, like, wow, I remember that. Go back, find the textbook, and bury it out of a box for moving some, you know, I hadn't put it in my bookshelf just yet. Sorry, Roger, if you're listening to this, but did find the book, opened it up, and said, yeah, why isn't somebody doing something like that for B2B? Why isn't there a buy-in process kind of model for B2B? So, so I hung on that, and I just kept thinking about it. And eventually, I just started getting ideas and created my own vision of what those stages should be. So that was the genesis of leaving Miller-Hyman. It was the genesis of the book because I had, um, and it was the genesis of the product that I sell today that I created 15, 16 years ago. Uh, which includes that bicycle funnel component. Tested that product with a couple of clients that I was selling Miller-Hyman stuff to. So now you have the complement, you know, and, you know, was it truly going to make the Miller-Hyman training pop, you know, which, that I thought it would? And it did. The clients loved it with the Miller-Hyman stuff. So I did a few of those gigs and I said, that's, that's it. That's, that's enough for me and maybe that's the book I need to write. So I, I had the client work in, in, in like uh, 02 and 03 and 04, I had a big, big uh, engagement with Goodyear and uh, a lot of validation. So basically I had a bunch of client stuff that I then said, I need to write a book about these experiences. And that's how the Funnel Principle book became. Fast forward to Blind Spots, the book. I started writing Blind Spots about four years ago and the, the title of the book was gonna be called Transparency blah, 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 and I'm liking, thank God, um, I didn't write a book with the cover called Transparency, because <laughs> that's a really boring title. I chewed on that for four years, not every day, right? I'd, I'd go in and out um, with various levels of intensity, and eventually it, that transparency uh, became blind spots, but the second time around, I'd like to say it was easier. Um, in some ways it was, in some ways it wasn't. But there's a lot of discipline involved. People ask, like, you know, how do you write a book? And I tell them, how, you, how do you write a book is you start writing a book. You know, you can come up with these great master outlines and, and ideas. But for me, anyway, it was, I mean, it was just a meandering process of 
getting stuff down and then sitting back and going, God, that's, that's really bad. <laughs> so let's get at it again. Or, Hey, that's, that's, there's a nugget there, you know, and then maybe that becomes a couple of chapters or a section, you know, um, and, and I'm really, I'm proud of, you know, proud of that because I'm really glad I didn't publish this book two years ago. I would not have been proud of it, but I'm proud of it now. You talked about that validation a little bit, especially with like the Goodyear project. I'm curious to hear, you know, I know it was a while back, but what went through your uh, your mental state of mind when all of a sudden a company that large buys into your product they're excited about and they're finding value out of it? I'm jacked up. <laughs> I'm excited, man. This is great, you know. Because, um, I, again, I, I said, why am I doing this? I'm doing this because I, I think that the world of sales process methods, et cetera, is missing something. And I think this is what it's missing. That's what I think. And so they basically, all of my clients have helped validate this for me, right? I mean, 120 global sales teams don't lie, you know? And, and that feels, you know, candidly, it feels really, really damn good. <laughs> did, anybody, did anybody kind of crush you in the beginning by just saying, no thanks, I'm not interested? Oh, sure, sure. You know, but I was, so I had my Miller-Hyman business and, you know, I would pitch from time to time, I would pitch funnel principle, bicycle funnel as a result of that. And, and, and some, maybe it was because of the way I positioned it. I didn't do a very good job, you know. Some of the best engagements I've had have been because the people immediately said, that's it. I worked with a company called Microchip Technology in Chandler, Arizona, about a $5 billion semiconductor company. Well, I was working with them, 550 salespeople, about 40 or so managers around the world. Now they're, they've had some acquisitions. Now they're up to about 1,200 or 1,500 salespeople. And I don't play in companies that big. You know, I, I play in small and medium-sized businesses, you know, 15, 20 million up to maybe 300, 400 million dollars of sales. And Mitch Little, the VP of Worldwide Sales and Applications, I met him at a conference early on when I had just published the book. Um, Selling Power Magazine ran these conferences. They still do. They call them Sales 2.0 conferences or leadership conferences. And I sponsored a bunch of these. And I had my booth and I got to speak and all this kind of stuff. I met Mitch there. And as soon as we were talking about this, he said, that's it. And we signed a big deal and a contract. And I worked with him flying all over the world, training, coaching his salespeople, sales managers. Took me you know, everywhere for about five years. We're not a hard sell. I mean, when it works really well, people, some leader says, I've been looking for something like that, and, and now I've found it. You know, it doesn't always work that way, but um, it's fun when it does. <laughs> right, right. So I'm curious, you know, you mentioned they were taking you all over the country for five years, like 120 clients. How many clients generally, if you don't mind me asking, are you working with at a time? Yeah, not at all. So, you know, my business basically when I say I'm a slow, solopreneur, we have resellers, but we don't have any resellers right now that are certified to actually do the training or the coaching. And for these resellers, that's fine. They just want to throw me a piece of business and have me sell it with them and then take it from there. I hope this doesn't come across the wrong way. I mean, there's only so much bandwidth that I have, mm -hmm. okay, because I do everything. And I probably need to continue to relook at that as a business model going forward, right? So I may run anywhere from seven to 10 clients a year. They're all retainer, so that means I'm doing something with them every single month. And I'm literally just looking at my schedule, and I've got, you know, Aluma Systems has got three days, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, once a month. And Valeron in Houston, they got me for a day and a half every month. 
and uh, you know, Provident has me for half a day, and A and V has me for a day, and and on and on and on. Hunting has me for a day and a half. So that's and that's why a lot of my time is I'm on the phone, either in my office on the phone or I'm in in their offices face to face sometimes. So seven to ten. Last year was a a year I had I think 14 clients in one year. Some of those were projects, and not retainers every day. It was it was almost too much. And thank goodness, honestly, I, I don't want to I don't want to run like that every year. It was too much. It was too much year after year. I wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of work. I, you know the balancing of that, right? Like as, as salespeople, right? It's hard to say no to somebody. Yeah. Like you often have to be. Hey, listen. I sorry. I've got to push back. Yeah. So so my pushback is okay. What what sacrifices? What gets sacrificed is I don't have time to write the book, okay, and bring it across the finish line. What sacrifices is my website doesn't get updated. What sacrifices is maybe some some changes I want to make to. Um, you know, frankly, since I don't have to do a lot of marketing because I get a lot of referrals, I don't have to. I don't do a lot of marketing. I don't do SEO, right? Um, I don't need to. I want to, I'm going to want to do that with a new book and a new platform, right? But um, so it's the things that the things that get sacrificed are those kinds of things. So there's probably always room for another client engagement, mm-hmm. you know, within reason. But even last year, I'd say probably that that got close to tapping out. I mean, I was just it was nothing but clients Monday through Friday. Have you ever thought about moving forward? Finding some resellers that do want to get trained up and, and licensed. Um, honestly, thought about it, and um, I think I'm just going to let that come to me. To be honest with you, because I don't have grand plans to quadruple the size of this business. I'm not. I'm not at that point in my career where I want to do that. I, in fact, met meeting with my friend today about what he wants to do. I said, "Look, I have the kind of business that I want to have. You know, I, I have a, a very high touch business with my clients. I mean, my clients like." hunting services in Houston, I give them a day and a half, two days a month to do their funnel audits. These are the one-hour funnel inspections with their teams, one-on-one per person. We go all day. The guy wasn't, he he couldn't be there to to be part of this very important meeting as every month. And it wasn't a big deal for him. He said, hey, by the way, I'm not going to be there. You run the meetings. So I have that kind of relationship with these salespeople and with these these clients that actually hire me. That's the kind of relationship I want to have. I can't do that with 15 clients, you know, uh, but if a, a reseller said, hey, no problem, you train me, certify me, then I'll, I'll call you when I need you, you know, onboard them, then if I can have my intimacy with my clients and have the kind of business I want to have, that's what's most important to me right now in my career. So we've talked a lot about it, but what exactly makes the bicycle funnel unique and, and how does that differ from the direction that you went with blind spots? So what makes the bicycle funnel unique? A couple of things. So when we created it, it was very, very unique. And today it's a little less, less unique for good reason, because more and more consultants and trainers are doing buyer journey kind of frameworks, right? So what makes it unique, number one, it's a, it's a stage gate or buying journey process that defines how the customer buys when they make a purchase. That's unique enough still today. A lot of companies are still... Their funnels, their, their sales process is still defined by seller activity, quick, quick difference. So a buying process model, the first stage might be something as simple and fundamental as the customer, the stakeholder that I'm talking to, the prospect, the lead, has acknowledged 
to me, you know, verbally told me, looked me in the eye, some kind of problem, some kind of need. Stage two might be the customer, again, has gone about the process of determining, is this a big problem costing us a lot of money, or is it a little problem that, frankly, we don't need to make a priority? And on and on and on. It's, these stages are defined by what the customer's doing, okay? And that's how we define the bicycle funnel. The traditional funnel is the stages of, of, the, uh, the stages of a purchase or sale are defined by the seller activity. So stage one might be the salesperson uh, goes and makes some prospecting calls on a targeted list. You know, literally emails, phone calls, whatever they might do. Stage two might be the first meeting. Okay, stage three might be putting together or doing a trial maybe or a demo if that's part of somebody's business. Uh, stage four might be uh, we do a, a proposal. Stage five might be presenting a proposal. Stage six might be trying to close on the proposal that you've given. And stage seven is really not a stage, basically it would be a PO if you've, won, if you've won the business. So clearly a difference, right? Customers doing everything over here in a bicycle funnel. The salesperson, is the, his or her activities is what defines where the deal is. That's a problem because how many demos and trials and proposals have you seen done and the customer wasn't ready for that, really didn't want that and didn't move on any of that for whatever reason, right? So it's not the traditional funnel is not a good indicator of, of uh, where the customer is, and it's not a good framework for how you're going to sell, let alone not good for valuing your funnel and all that stuff too. So that's what makes it uh, unique. The second thing that makes it unique is we have a pivotal stage called the commit funding stage. And that's where we say that the person who really has the authority to spend money on anything to change, to fix the problem, to pursue the opportunity. That individual has said, I'm familiar enough with the problems. I know the economic business impact if we don't do anything about it. And therefore, team, go continue to find a solution. Bring me back some ideas. It's not a blank check, but you know, this is allocated. You know, I've got it in my mind what something like this might cost a range. And I'm giving you permission that we're going to do something. So that's a pivotal stage in the buying process. If you just had a funnel that had, if you had a two-stage funnel <laughs> and had none, nothing but deals that hadn't reached that stage yet and deals that have reached that stage yet, you'd have a lot of salespeople who would be doing a better job of qualifying and disqualifying all the opportunities they're chasing. And that's the basis of, of the bicycle funnel, to, to establish that pivotal you know, point so that you can then direct your selling activities. They haven't reached the commit funding stage yet. What do we have to do? Maybe we need to put a better business case together. You don't think this is a problem costing you money? In our experience with other customers we've dealt with, it has been. Now, it may be different for you, right? But you get into those conversations, right? Or if they have decided. And now we're, as CEB Gartner likes to say, we're in the 57% game. And you and I talked about this at uh, Tim Hortons one day, right? So those that are, the, le the leads we find where the customer has already decided, we're going to fix this problem. And that's why we've called you because we want you to give us a proposal. But that's the first touch point we've had. We don't know anything about how they've arrived at this, at this place. So we haven't done any discovery. We don't know what the business impact is. We haven't been on that journey with them. But they want a proposal from us. Most businesses don't win a, as high a, a share of those deals as the share of the deals they win when they're fr there from the beginning at stage one talking about the problems and the business impact. So that's a big difference in our funnel versus other buying journey kinds of, of models. And then maybe the last thing to say would be 
the way we value the funnel. We don't let clients value the funnel, uh, any deals on the funnel, unless they've reached that commit funding stage. So somebody could be working a rocking stage one, stage two deal, but if it, by our process, if it hasn't reached stage three commit funding, we can't verify the customer's done that, then we say, do not add that to your funnel value. So if you're reporting up to management, hey, our funnel is X big, it's a $5 million funnel or it's a $7 million funnel, you can't include those, those opportunities yet. And, and that really sets up a, a more accurate forecasting and again, direct salespeople to go get more funnel value. Go work your stage ones and twos as opposed to working the deals you think have passed that stage that, that have not. That's where a, a lot of salespeople tend to get into trouble. And now when we transition into blind spots, now where are we going moving forward with this uh, ideation philosophy and technique? So blind spots, um, blind spots came out of all the work that I have been doing with frontline sales managers. So over the past five, six, seven years, with our normal funnel principle, you know, system, selling system, I spent a lot of time with the managers, whether it's in person or on the phone, helping them coach their salespeople. And about four or five years ago, I started to, I chose to listen to a different part of the conversation. I, I didn't have the capability, frankly, of listening to that part of the conversation beforehand. But I started to hear the coaching beyond just the funnel stuff that I had been teaching and coaching people on. I was, frankly, I was just hearing, you know, the whole person. And I would hear tension, I would hear judgment, I would hear urgency, I would hear, you just got to do it like me. You know, I had your job before. So if you just do what I tell you to do, you know, you're going to be a good salesperson. So unflattering, you know, not coaching types of behaviors. So in, in having the conversations with managers about how that call just went, those conversations got interesting. Right? So my, my clients, now the manager, might, may get defensive, may say, what are you talking about? You know, I wasn't talking over her, and I would look at my notes and say, well, you said this, and she was talking, and then you jumped in, and, and then eventually they'd say, okay, you know, I had a lot of credibility with them, and they would believe what I was saying. So eventually I concluded that what I was witnessing, witnessing was what I call blind spots, people who in some cases have exhibit harmful and even destructive behavior as managers and they have no idea they're doing it. They don't have a clue. And so for me to make them aware of that is a, uh, it's a breakthrough for a lot of these people because, because they don't know they're doing it, right? Nobody really, I think, in their heart of hearts wants to talk over people. Nobody really wants to judge their salespeople. You know, she doesn't do it like me. Okay, well, she's got a different style than you. Maybe she can get where you need her to be the way she wants to get there as long as she's working processes and frameworks. But you know, let her have her style, right? Support her, encourage her. So it's been fun because there's, there's a lot of personal stuff going on here related to blind spots. People have these blind spots for a lot of personal reasons. <laughs> you know, some people are just angry people. <laughs> some, some people are just... Uh, uh, they want to please everybody kind of people, right? And so, I mean, it go, goes both ways. These aren't, you know, these aren't um, nasty criticisms. They're just objective facts about people. But if we make people aware of how they're wired and how they come across, if they can become more aware, that it's like an alcoholic who would first admits that he's an alcoholic. Huge 
huge hurdle overcome. If we can help, help people see that they, are, they exhibit this kind of behavior, then they're in the best position to actually do something about it, to get better, to deliver better coaching, to stop talking so much and thinking that that's coaching, to stop thinking that she's gonna, if all she would do is do it like me, she'd be a better salesperson. No, that's not, it's not, I think, how you should approach her, right? So getting that awareness on the table for them. And we use the Enneagram tool, which is conveniently called a personality tool. Um, it's a lot more than that, but um, for the sake of the conversation, we can call it that. We use the Enneagram personality tool with, with these managers to help them become self-aware. I mentioned I'm a three, I'm a high achiever. Doesn't make me any better than anybody else but it makes me wired a certain way. And when I am on and at my best as a three, um, and when you need a three, when the world needs a three, you better call me, you better find me because I'm going to be exactly what you need. But when you don't need the ugliness, the unhealthy part of a three, then run away from me as fast as you can. When you need the big bold vision of, of an Enneagram type eight, by golly, you better find one. Okay, leading a company, leading a country, whatever it might be, helping define purpose, leading that initiative, getting people rallied around that purpose, vision, whatever, you better find yourself an eight who can partake in something like that. But when you don't want somebody who will absolutely never ever leave themselves vulnerable in front of anybody else, and they always have the appearance of being the strongest person in the room and everything's, I got it together, Okay, and when that starts to hurt organizations or countries and any, any type of leadership, then you gotta get those eights out of there, right? So having this tool to have that kind of conversation with managers is really, really powerful. And I'm finding it to be a blast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it all sounds really interesting. And, and for me, right, as a newer manager, I definitely feel a lot of the times I'm wondering in my head, like, hey, am I doing this? right way or is there something I'm missing right I think it's I'm excited I'll definitely read the book and I'm excited to uh, learn more about it I, the Enneagram test right it's one that I'm not familiar with as much I've done disc profiles yep. Briggs-Myers those sorts of things yeah uh, it's it's not as popular as Myers-Briggs and some of the others but it's becoming it's becoming pretty popular there are some there's like some I mean popular books right now on the Enneagram uh, Suzanne Stabile runs a podcast a wonderful wonderful Enneagram master she's got a couple of books out Ian Cron she co-authored a book with with him um, look I mean between you and me let me know if you're interested I'll steer you to the right kind of test because mm -hmm. there are some highly recommended tests and there are some that are not highly recommended got to be careful so looking forward to the future, you know, what are the goals look like for you for the next three to five years with everything that you have on the table right now? Goals three to five years. Business related, get blind spots to be whatever it's destined to be. I don't, you know, we'll just, I almost said that, it, what I almost said what I, what I'm glad I didn't say, right? <laughs> so I'd like it to be successful. I'm proud of it, you know, but um We'll just see. We'll just see where it goes. I, I have high hopes for it. I think it's going to be. Uh, I think it's going to have a very exciting impact in the marketplace, and um, I'm looking forward to all the conversations. So that's a big part of, I think, the business going forward. Funnel principle. We got um, a lot more to, a lot more businesses to reach. You know, with funnel principle, and maybe some resellers are in the future. We'll see. Excited about things like that. 
my son graduating from high school. He's entering his senior year. So we're going to take a look at this year and coming up and just really try to soak him in as, as much as we can while we still have him. And uh, heading to Chicago with my two daughters, helping my other daughter move from one apartment to another apartment. You know, dads always have to be there for that kind of stuff, taking the truck up there, taking care of myself physically, you know, trying to eat better and make good decisions on that kind of stuff. It's always uh, front and center. So try to have more fun. <laughs> I'm a serious guy. <laughs> I'm a goal-setting, go-get-it-done-accomplished kind of guy. And like I was saying earlier, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable. I'm, I'm more comfortable being alone than I am with groups of people. And I'd like to work on that, you know, because I know I'm going to grow more as an individual if I put myself in those uncomfortable kinds of situations. So hopefully I'll have the courage to do that. I think, uh, you know, it's a great place to wrap it up. Ties it well back in with the beginning, tying back to living uncomfortably. But uh, any last words for people of Columbus here? People of Columbus, uh, I just say, you know, I've been in Columbus now since 94, and then this city has, um, it just blows me away what, what this city has become, and, and, and we're not done. We're not close to being done. I read an, uh, an article, I think, in the dispatch the other day, and I, hopefully I would say support your local newspaper. Um, the dispatch is, is a great, great newspaper, and we need, we need newspapers you know, because they're breaking stories that are really, really important. So I would encourage everybody to continue to support uh, the dispatch. And I have no stake in that, by the way, so <laughs> for the record. Uh, but the article I saw was um, they were saying how many apartments are being built in the city. And, you know, are we building too many? And the reports that it, multiple reports have come out said, no, we could probably use another thousand or more apartments a year, I think. Does that sound right? Or is it a month? I can't remember. Some big number. So sorry about that. But we need more. But I'm just, I'm just, I'm thrilled. We have great leadership like uh, the Wolf, you know, family and, and the Wexners and, and all the people that do so much for this city, the, the public, par the public private partnership we have. Other cities are jealous of how well our leaders, and I'm sorry, I can't name another five or six, but how well they work with our city and vice versa. It's really what makes this, this city as successful as it is. It's a great place to be. Couldn't agree more, Mark, and thanks a lot for joining us on the show. Really My pleasure, guys. It's uh, nice talking with you. Yeah, and Conquerors, thanks for tuning in. That was Mark Sellers, founder and CEO of Breakthrough Sales Performance LLC. If you want to learn more about him and his, uh, his business, check out the links down in the show notes. Thanks, guys, for tuning in. And uh, if you liked it, leave us a like on Facebook, share it on iTunes, or share it on Facebook. Review it on iTunes. You know the drill. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, Conquerors, that's it for the episode today. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you did, make sure to leave a like. Share us on Facebook with your friends. We really appreciate all your support. And every time you share our podcast or leave a review on iTunes, it really does help us out. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus, and their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community, and Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to join like-minded businesses to raise money for great causes, participate in large-scale volunteer efforts, and improve educational opportunities for youth in our community. 
To get your small business involved or to learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That is smallbizcares.org. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And now I'm going to kick it back to Josh to tell you about our last sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo. A desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.